Uh, we've been looking at the ways that uh, the Lord God has shown Himself in the Old Testament Scriptures, how the New Testament Christ is revealed in, uh, in such things as the sacrifice of Isaac and such things as the bronze serpent lifted up and such things as the sign of Jonah and his ministry. And so today we're going to finish up that series by looking at Moses as a type of Christ. But next week we're going to be getting in Ecclesiastes. So make sure you, uh, you don't bring your little orange Bible that only has the New Testament and Psalms and Proverbs. You're going to need the whole Bible next week for sure. So we hope that you can come and join us and we're going to work our way verse by verse by that uh, interesting, unique Old Testament book. Well, last week we finished up studying the book of, uh, or last year rather, we finished up studying the book of Luke together. My timeline was a little off there. In the very last chapter of Luke, Luke records a story of two followers of Jesus who were traveling back home three days after Jesus was crucified. These travelers are on their way to a town called Emmaus, and they're really beside themselves. How could God allow this man that they believed to be their Messiah. How could God allow him to be put to death like this? How could God allow his perfect servant to be put to such public shame? As they grieve in confusion, these two travelers are walking along and what appears to be a stranger joins them on the road. And he has some startling things to say to them. So in Luke chapter 24, looking at verses 25 through 27, and he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. We, the reader, have the benefit of knowing that this mysterious person who joined them on the road was actually the resurrected Jesus in disguise. He had veiled his appearance so that these two followers of Christ who knew Christ well, who were close to him, could not recognize him. To assure them that the Holy Scriptures they knew and trusted gave them clear proof, not only that Jesus was Messiah, but that it was necessary for Messiah to die so that our sins might be forgiven and to be resurrected from the dead victorious so that he might be the first of many to be resurrected. Jesus began to preach himself to them using the only scriptures that they had at the time, using the Old Testament texts. And who did Jesus begin at? He began this exposition from Old Testament scripture at Moses. If you want to get a clear picture of how all the Old Testament scriptures point to Jesus Christ. The life and person of Moses the prophet is a wonderful place to begin. We've been looking at shadows and types in the Old Testament. We've seen how an Old Testament event or object (coughs) or person whose story was valuable in its own context very frequently told a second story, pointed forward to a story to come, pointed forward to the greater works that God would do in the future for His people. Why does God choose to reveal Himself and His will to us in these shadows and types? Why does He choose to engineer human history in such a way that important themes and concepts that are revealed later are embedded in important and meaningful ways 
in the details and encounters that, that God's people have with God years before those future events occur. I want to give you a few reasons here this morning. First of all, these shadows and types are important because they tend to give us a greater awe and a greater wonder for God's plan. As we see him clearly working in coordinated ways over the course of thousands of years, in any good story that you read or hear, when there's information given to you early in the story and you're not entirely sure how it advances the plot, and then somewhere far down the road in the story, you see how those elements that were presented earlier tie together to give you just what you need for the story to make sense. Doesn't that give you a sense of appreciation for the story? It gives you the impression that the author knew what he was trying to communicate and was very specific about the details of that story because he had a plan. He was being intentional. The author of history itself is a brilliant sovereign God who knows exactly what he's doing and how the story he is telling through every detail of life will end. And so when we see these Old Testament texts pointing in revealing ways towards the New Testament revelation, it gives us a comforting sense that God's story and ours has great purpose and will accomplish every intention that God has for his creation. So that's one reason why we appreciate these shadows and types. A second is that when we see a pattern or a theme that is repeated through a great work of literature such as the Bible, it lends a sense of importance to that theme. If something is said more than once, if we hear it a couple of different ways, it draws our attention to it. It's probably worth remembering. <coughs> and repetition itself tends to help our limited human intellect remember important things. So the fact that what we see Christ do in the New Testament Scripture was foreordained in the Old and pre-revealed to an extent in the Old Testament Scriptures helps to repeat and drive into our hearts these concepts so that we will remember how God works among His people, how He intends to redeem, how He reveals Himself to us. Thirdly, when there are many similarities between two things, such as a theme in the Old Testament that is fulfilled in the New Testament, when they're very similar, <coughs> there's often something good and important to be learned by observing their contrasts as well. What is significantly different between these otherwise similar stories? God isn't just filling space by repeating ideas. If he tells a story a second time, <coughs> there's usually a new element included that advances our understanding of that theme. And then lastly, because the, revela the revelation of God is a progressive revelation, meaning God doesn't give us everything we need to know right at the beginning, he progressively opens our eyes to more and more of his plan and purposes. The themes in the Old Testament that are repeated and built upon in the New Testament give us an appreciation for the more complete and full example of Jesus Christ. When we notice how the New Testament fulfills these Old Testament shadows and types, we learn how better Jesus is than the people and the events and the things that foreshadowed him. His work is more complete. His character is perfect. His ways are, are more pure and, and, and succinct. And so when we notice these, these New Testament fulfillments of the Old, our appreciation and love for Christ should grow and should, should, should increase because of the way that he is the perfection of all things that we could not perfect ourselves. 
Sometimes a type or shadow <clears throat> in the Old Testament is an object, such as the bronze serpent that was lifted up. Sometimes a type or a shadow in the Old Testament is, is an event, such as the offering of Isaac. But sometimes the type or shadows offer a more direct comparison. Sometimes the very life of a person points forward to the one magnificent life that would forever free God's chosen people from sin. There are many Old Testament figures whose character and actions in significant ways pointed forward to the greater prophet, the greater priest, the greater king, Jesus Christ. Adam, Joseph, Melchizedek, Joshua, all are types of Jesus in some way, shape, or form. There are so many examples. But perhaps none of these typifies Jesus more vividly in a more complex way than Moses did. The giver and the mediator of the covenant law. And while Abraham was the father of the nation of Israel, Moses was their most celebrated prophet. Besides Jesus, who in the scripture performed as many signs and wonders as Moses did? No one. The hand of God was clearly upon him. And the Lord used Moses in tremendous ways to shape the nation of Israel and to direct them in the worship and interaction with Yahweh. But integrated into the life that Moses lived in the office that God called him to was an intricate pattern. And when we look back and carefully observe the pattern, we begin to see a provenient echo of the wonderful things that God in the flesh would do during his time here on earth. When we say that Moses was a type of Christ, we're not saying that Moses was an equivalent to Jesus or a substitute for Jesus. No, he was a precursor that pointed to the many features of Jesus' redemptive work. And so we're going to examine him today. There are too many parallels to cover in one Sunday morning, but together we will look at four areas of Moses' life that typifies and foreshadows the life of Jesus. We're going to take a moment to examine how Moses and Jesus are alike in their origin. They're similar in the way they came into the world. Secondly, they are alike in their experiences. In, in the things that God allowed them to encounter in their time on earth. They are alike, thirdly, in their station. Uh, or, or in their calling, you may say. God has called them uh, to very important tasks. And so we see that, these or that, that Moses and, and Jesus share much in their responsibilities. And then, fourthly, they are alike in their death. If we have time, we'll talk about that this morning. So let's begin by taking a look at how Moses and Jesus are alike in their origin. <clears throat> you probably already know that the way Moses entered into the world was quite unique. But have you ever considered the intricate similarities between the advent of Moses and the unique way that God's son Jesus entered into our world? The book of Exodus, Exodus uh, begins a few generations after Joseph had granted his 12 brothers not only Forgiveness, his 11 brothers, forgiveness, but food to survive the famine that had stricken the whole region. Joseph's family had remained in Egypt, and even after Joseph's death, they remained there for many years. The Israelites grew very strong, thanks to the blessings of God, so strong that the king of Egypt began to fear that these foreigners that were dwelling among them would eventually overpower the native Egyptians and come to rule the nation. So drastic measures were taken by that Pharaoh. He forced the Hebrews into slave labor. And he enacted a law 
<coughs> that all male children born to Hebrew families should be thrown into the Nile as a way of controlling their population. Brutal measures. Does that sound at all to you like the facts that we read in the Gospel of Matthew just after the birth of Jesus? Look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. And then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. You see the parallels there? Both Moses and Jesus were born in times of foreign domination and rule over Israel, under earthly kings that tried to put them to death. <coughs> As an infant, Moses escaped this fate when he was put into a reed basket, and he was floated down the Nile at just the place that Pharaoh's daughter happened to be bathing. She noticed the young boy and took him in to be raised in the royal courts of Egypt. How did Jesus escape King Herod's genocide of Hebrew boys in the region of Bethlehem? Matthew 2, verse 13 says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee, where? To Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So both Moses and Jesus spent their early years in Egypt. Moses maturing in the house of Pharaoh, young Jesus remaining there with his family until Herod had passed and prophesy, or the prophecy of Hosea 11.1 1 was fulfilled, which says, out of Egypt, God would call his son. And so Jesus and his family returned to dwell in Nazareth. Jesus came into the world by humble means. He was God in the flesh and worthy of more than this world could ever offer to him. But Jesus humbled himself and took on the form of a servant, took on the form of a man, and then dwelt humbly here among us, the son of Joseph, the carpenter, in a town of little consequence or influence. He deserved fanfare. He deserved accolades. He deserved to be celebrated. And yet he lived a humble life among humble people. Moses, too, had the opportunity to enjoy the royal life. After 40 years in the courts of Pharaoh, he was a man of power, a man of a distinguishment. But as a grown man of 40, he began to see the plight that the Hebrew people to whom he was related by blood were going through. He began to see their suffering and it, he grew uncomfortable with it. He desired to stand up to the cruelty of the Egyptian jailer who mistreated his fellow Hebrew. And he struck him down and that, that jailer died. And in doing so, he had to flee Egypt and forfeit his royal comforts. So even though, <coughs> even though both Moses and Jesus had rights to royalty, both chose to live among common people. Do you see how the stories of these two remarkable figures, when compared side by side, reveal astonishing overlap and commonality? Both of their beginnings were distinguished by unique and unusual circumstances, which serve as an indicator that God is planning to use them in special and powerful ways. Moses and Jesus were alike in their origins, but they were also alike in their experience, in the things that they experienced through their lives. Both of these men were shepherds in some way. Moses was raised in Pharaoh's court, as we've spoken of, very educated, very qualified for more dignified employment. But even as he fled the country of Egypt, he did not go and seek for a high station. Upon forfeiting his royal position, he contents himself in the entry-level work 
of tending to sheep. He is humble. Humble enough to find contentment in such work and likely learned much about leading people from his time managing stubborn, dull creatures. Jesus, though he did not count it robbery to consider himself equal to God, was happy also to describe himself in John 10, 11, saying, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Like Moses, Jesus determined to lead a vulnerable and defenseless flock that needed him desperately. His tender care for them kept them from disaster and it protected them from many wild dangers. Both Moses and Jesus performed miraculous signs in their time on earth, particularly concerning water. Think about it. Moses led his people out of captivity only to be stopped by the Red Sea. But upon following the instructions of God and lifting up his staff, <coughs> Moses displays the power of God in parting the sea and allowing the people to walk through on dry ground. In Matthew 14, Jesus desired to re rejoin his disciples who had sailed ahead across the Sea of Galilee before him. And so he exhibited power over creation by walking upon the face of the water. Though there were strong winds and rough waves, Jesus was able to join his men in the boat to their great surprise. Both men um, fed many in a miraculous provision as a display of God's power in them. In ex Exodus 16, we read about how Moses provided manna by the hand of God and water from the rock in the wilderness, both of which were types of Christ in their own right. By these consistent supernatural supplies, Moses kept a huge mass amount of people alive in the wilderness. And in comparison, Jesus gave himself to those who had faith in him, describing himself as a bread that would never leave them, that would never leave them hungry and, and a well of water that would take away their thirst forever. And he does this after, of course, literally feeding the 5,000 in the wilderness. Each provided food for others, but both also personally fasted themselves for 40 days and 40 nights. Have you ever noticed this? Moses did so when he went to meet with God on Mount Sinai. He was called there to replace the tablets that were destroyed after the controversy over the golden calf. And so he ascended that mountain, um, interceded for his people. God had mercy on them. And he calls, them to, uh, calls Moses to, to bring two more tablets up so they can restore the commandment to the people. And we read in Exodus chapter 34, verse 28. So he was there with the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. He neither <coughs> ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Of course, Jesus fasted as well, being called into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit at the very beginning of his earthly ministry. He neither ate nor drank for 40 days, surviving by faith that God would meet his needs, which of course God did. Both Moses and Jesus, though sent of God, were rejected by their people. In Acts 7, the first martyr of the, the New Testament church, Stephen, is preaching to the Jews from the synagogues who are angry with him and who are threatened by this gospel about Jesus being the true Messiah. And so he preaches a beautiful sermon. <clears throat> and in that sermon, he draws their attention to their own history. He reminds them that even when Moses had stood up for the abused Hebrew, when, he were, when they were back in Egypt, when he had tried to fight on his behalf and, and he had killed that man, those same Hebrews, rather than rejoicing in, in his support of them and heralding him as a hero, they rejected him 
Acts 7, 26-27 says, And on the following day, He appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? It was shortly after that that it became known to Moses that others knew of his murder of the Egyptian guard, and so he fled, but not until before he was rejected by his own people. Stephen goes on to call out these synagogue leaders, reminding them that just as their forefathers persecuted and rejected Moses and other prophets, they were now doing the very same thing to Jesus. Clearly man sent of God, clearly Messiah. God was received well by many, but ultimately he was rejected by his high priests, by the scribes, and by the Sanhedrin, by most of the Pharisees, by these men who should have known him. John 1.11 puts it succinctly. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Both Moses and Jesus endured the complaints of those who they were commissioned to lead. I don't need to cite scripture and verse on this. You, you've seen throughout the Old Testament how Moses, though desiring the best for his people, often had to endure their complaints and their grumbling, wondering why they didn't have enough water or the right kinds of food or <coughs> where they were going or when it was gonna, how long it was going to take them to get to this promised land. So too did Jesus see the people complain. They complained about his Sabbath healings. They complained about his disciples' lack of fasting. They complained that he did not wash the same way that they did before a meal. But despite having this tough calling in common, they also benefited greatly from the unique positions that God had put them in. Both Moses and Jesus experienced a very intimate fellowship with the Lord God. Deuteronomy 34.10 says, And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Wow. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be Moses, to be able to just talk back and forth with the voice of Almighty God? Though his calling was not an easy one, the fellowship that he enjoyed by receiving that calling and saying yes to it was immeasurable. <clears throat> In Exodus 31 and 34, Moses is granted the opportunity to actually gaze upon God, at least to look upon the back of his countenance. I don't know what that was like, but John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made known to him. Jesus, of course, has had eternal fellowship with God the Father and with the Holy Spirit. And that did not get interrupted when he was on earth except for perhaps in the moment that he spent on the cross dying for our sins. Note too that each of Moses and Jesus had transfiguration experiences. In Exodus 34 verse 29, Moses came down from Mount Sinai having received the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. As he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Moses shimmered like light. In fact, to be less distracting, he covered it with a veil so that others could not see it. And then in Matthew 17, 2, as Peter and James and John have gone up on a mountain with Jesus, they see a change in him. Two figures appear. Ironically, one of them is Moses himself who has experienced this kind of transfiguration, this precursor to Christ's exaltation. And Elijah is there as well. And the appearance of Jesus begins to change. 
verse, 17, or verse 2 of chapter 17 in Matthew, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. <coughs> we could draw the common thread through many other experiences that were similar between Jesus and the prophet of the law, but even more significant than what they experienced was the work which each of them was called to do by God. Moses and Jesus are alike in their calling. Throughout the scriptures, it pleased God to set aside certain people for important, unique works that will advance God's will in the world and contribute to the advancement of his kingdom. And of course, no one has been appointed to do more than Jesus Christ, who is, according to the book of Hebrews, the better version of every prophet, of every priest, of every king who has ever been described in the Old Testament record. But the one individual who comes closest to fulfilling the scope of responsibilities that Jesus fulfilled would have to be Moses. We read that Moses served God as a judge. Exodus 18.13 talks about how he used the word that God revealed to him to judge matters of the land. And in John 5, we see that Jesus serves as judge over his people. Moses was a teacher to the, 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 the to the chosen people of Israel. In Deuteronomy 4, 5, we see him teaching the law to them. In John 18, 20, we see Jesus teaching to the people of Israel and also uh, later to the, the Gentile world as his words are recorded and we as his church can benefit from what he taught. He taught openly in public. He did not teach in secret. He was a strong and bold teacher. Moses served as a prophet, of course. And, and Jesus was referred to again and again by those who encountered him, not only as rabbi, teacher, but also as prophet. Moses was a priest. He wasn't a priest in the same regard that Aaron was. God used Aaron, his brother, to, uh, to do most of the priestly work. But in Exodus 40, we see Moses consecrating the temple and preparing Aaron for his priestly duty. We also see in Psalm 99.6 that Aaron and Moses were both priests unto the Lord. And then in Hebrews 4.14, we read about how Jesus serves as the great high priest, the one high priest that replaces all the need for a mediator for us as he stands between us and the Lord God. Moses, even in a sense, fulfills the office of king. In Deuteronomy 33, 4-5, says, Thus he became king in Jeshurun when the heads of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. He wasn't officially a king but he did serve in a leadership capacity that was essentially like God's king in the world. And in John 18, 33 through 40, we see, of course, that Jesus Christ is the king of kings and lord of lords. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. The kingdom that he's speaking to, of course, is the spiritual kingdom, the eternal kingdom that will last forever. The kingdom that he is at this very moment seated at the right hand of God the Father ruling over. So both Moses and Jesus were called to do remarkably similar things. But one aspect of their calling deserves very special attention. Both Moses and Jesus were called by God to be the mediator of particular covenants. To be the mediator of a covenant meant to stand between the two parties who had agreed to interact with each other according to the statutes of that covenant. To communicate between the two terms of arrangement and to manage the interaction between the two. And so in Exodus 20, or 34 verse 27, 
the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. What kind of a covenant did Moses mediate? The covenant of works, the covenant of the law. If you live like this, then you will be blessed like this. It was a conditional covenant, a covenant that put responsibility and onus on the shoulders of Israel and Moses. Now this was in some ways a frustrating assignment for Moses because the covenant of works, while it fulfilled a very important purpose, was by its very nature a covenant impossible for man to keep. It determined the holy way that God's people were to interact with God, but because man is not holy, but is by his very nature sinful and rebellious in the pattern of Adam, the law served as a mirror of sorts, a constant reminder that try as they may, Man could not attain to God. The covenant law exposed the failures and the shortcomings of man. And so all of the sacrifices that we talked about last week during Resurrection Sunday were put in place to show that man's sin is serious, leading to death and separation from God. And that any hope of fellowship with God needed a cleansing atonement. Somehow that sin needed to be dealt with. A substitution willing and qualified to die in the place of the sinner needed to be found. This covenant had its faults because those sheep, those oxen, those goats were never the right equivalent to pay for the souls of men. <clears throat> but the covenant that Moses mediated was not the last covenant. Jesus was the mediator of a better and more sufficient covenant. I mentioned earlier one of the benefits of the shadows and types that God uses, is that when two things are so similar, their few differences stand out all the more and help us to see how the fulfillment is superior to its shadow and its type. And this is one of those instances, friends. Do you recall in Exodus 32, when Moses comes down from the mountain to deliver the law in, in the form of the Ten Commandments, and, a sh and to his shock, he sees this nation that he has advocated for, this nation that he is a mediator for, they have, under Aaron's watch, degraded into idolatry. They have formed for themselves a golden calf and they have begun to worship it with a kind of adoration that only Yahweh deserves. His anger burns hot against Israel. God's not happy with their actions and Moses is distraught. God expresses his intentions to do away with all of Israel, to keep Moses to himself and to start again. But Moses throws himself before the Lord and he intercedes, begging for God to show the Israelites mercy. And in verse 32 of Exodus 32, Moses even offers up his own life on behalf of these wicked people, inviting God to blot him out of the book of life rather than to do away with Israel. Such was his love for them that he was prepared to take their guilt upon himself but Moses, while willing, was a sinner himself and not worthy to do the task. Though Moses is like Christ in many ways, Moses was not Christ. He was not enough. The covenant that he mediated was a flawed covenant because it was contingent on the obedience of man. And the obedience of man is never enough. Jesus is the mediator of a much better covenant. And it's the covenant which his church is called to interact with him under.
as mediators of covenants. Both Moses and Jesus are involved in bringing God's people from bondage into freedom. Moses to a temporary material freedom. Jesus freeing his people from their sin for eternity by his precious blood. We even read the, the interesting words in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 2, where it says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the seas, talking about the cloud that led them out of Egypt and how they walked through the sea on dry land after the waters were parted. In verse 2, And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Isn't that a strange way to talk about Moses? Why would he even say that if he was not using Moses as a shadow and a type of Jesus Christ? Because we go on to Galatians 3.27, which says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, have found a better mediator, a perfect one to stand between you and the Lord. The similarities between the two are numerous, but the differences are just as significant. Moses brings us the law, a law that man could not keep regardless of how hard they were to try. As children of Adam, we are born breakers of the law. And so we need something more. We need a better mediator who can make it possible for us to stand guiltless before perfect and holy God. Moses brought the law, but he could not fulfill it. Only Jesus could live according to its statutes without flaw so that he had no debt to pay before the Lord God and could therefore offer his pure life as a substitute for our broken ones. Matthew 5.17 says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law. These are the words of Jesus. <clears throat> or abolish the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so Jesus accomplished what Moses could only point forward to. Moses, though a very godly man, Exodus 40.16 says he did all the things that God called him to do, though he was close to being a, an example for us, was imperfect himself and could not enter the land of promise. Jesus was flawless in every way and will reign forever in a promised land that exceeds the virtues of Canaan. It would be some 1,500 years from the time that Moses lived, from the time that God authored that special life, to the time that Jesus lived. Yet in the 1,500 years that stood between them, the story did not change. God's plan did not change. God's will was not altered. His covenant relationship with man was jeopardized by sin. A sacrifice was needed to redeem man and reconcile that broken relationship. But the main difference between their two stations, their two services to God, their two characters, was that Jesus fulfilled the law and was the perfect, sufficient sacrifice. In Christ, that solution has taken on flesh. What was lacking in Moses is perfected in the Son of God. As we close, I, I want you to uh, listen to the words of Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. There's a whole section we're not going to get to today because of time. I hope that we would get to it. But take some time this week <coughs> in your personal devotions and read those verses that also point to the ways that Moses and Jesus were similar in their deaths, in the ways that they passed out of this world. But let's, let's listen to the words of Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. And let's end with our minds on this wonderful distinction between the first and lesser covenant and the second and perfect covenant. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. 
who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in hope. Examining these things is so much more than an academic literary exercise. It opens our eyes to the fact that the whole of Scripture points to one crisis in us, a crisis that only Christ can remedy. Are you in Christ today? That is the question that needs to be answered by every heart. Are you found in His glory? Have you been redeemed by His better sacrifice? If you think of religion as just a format that you can work within and show God your holiness and show Him your obedience that He might count you as better than other men and women, then you are not in Christ. You are in Moses. I urge you today to consider the fact that all that Moses pointed towards was fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And if you have Him, then the law is perfected in your Savior. It doesn't need to be perfected in you. It's already perfected in Christ. And by the power with which we walk in the newness of spirit and the newness of life, we can now live out the law with joy because of what Christ has done to transform us and to take us into this new covenant of relationship with Him. Would you bow your heads as we have a word of prayer and conclusion?